0: It's a real pleasure to be here with Elliot Noss, President and CEO of Two Cows Incorporated. Elliot has very generously and graciously agreed to speak at Lattice Work 2017, taking place on September 7th at the Yale Club of New York, exploring the subject of intelligent investing in a changing world. Elliot, thank you for speaking at the conference, and also thank you for being here right now with me.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: Happy to be here, Shai. By way of background, regarding a changing world, 2Cals, a 23-year-old company that has been publicly traded for 15 years. It's uh, also the first public company in which Union Square Ventures has ever made a substantial investment. Regarding intelligent investing, under Elliott's leadership, 2Cals has executed eight modified Dutch tender offers and multiple normal course issuer bids since January 2007, repurchasing more than 50% of shares outstanding. Before we dabble into these details, Elliot, please share with us more detail on your own personal journey.
1: I think, as with most people, I don't find my story very interesting. You know, it's a story of staying because I've been doing the same thing for over 20 years now, and I've been lucky enough to never really have one year be too much like the previous. You know, my time before this current role in running two cows, you know, was really not spotted with much success. And, you know, one of the things that I've said a number of times is, you know, I really didn't do much of anything until the internet came along. And, and I really have felt like my career has been very intertwined uh, with the internet itself. And then inside of two cows, I've been uh, lucky enough to have a platform or a vehicle where I could take the things that I loved, which you know, pretty broad, uh, really spanning finance and technology and people and a couple other areas and, and a love of going deep on topics to provide just a, a great work environment where we've been able to create a fair bit of value over the last 20 years. And I have in front of me a message that was
0: published by Union Square Ventures on February 6, 2017. They, being two CALS, believes, as do we, being Union Square Ventures, that a modern communications infrastructure is the most important investment any community can make to expedite the transition from a 20th century economy based on undifferentiated manufacturing to a 21st century economy based on highly specialized manufacturing and services. Elliot, what just happened and what did I just
1: touch on? Well, I think there's probably two things that are important. I think it's easy for all of us to understand that the Internet has remade markets, has remade technology, has remade communications, has remade people's social lives, has remade politics. It's really allowed... You know, humankind to connect and impact in ways that just you know weren't possible before. One of the challenges that we have today is we are stuck, kind of fighting uh, the last battle, and in this case, uh, with communications infrastructure. Sadly, that means coax cable, and the reason I, I call that out specifically, shy you know, we have infrastructure today in fiber internet, which you want to think about as just the fastest, most reliable internet that you can have. And, you know, that is infrastructure that should be treated on par with water and electricity and highways and roads. And uh, because it kind of sort of looks like Cable, which was the last similar infrastructure, we treat it like it is a discretionary good or an entertainment product. And I think that that uh, you know Union Square and us just recognize that you know we're in a, a world where those without future-proof communications infrastructure just can't compete. And I think we both care about our
0: environments. And I think this starts to touch on the Lattice Work 2017 focus, intelligent investing in a changing world. How do you deconstruct that phrase?
1: Well, we really, since the dawn of modern investing, so you know, let's go back to the period that, that, that just sort of led up into the first great crash and then great depression. You know, Since the dawn of modern investing, it has been the case that the promise has paid off uh, better in the short term than the actual results. And I think that, um, you know, that's true. Uh, You know, you can go back to the madness of crowds, you know, one of the uh, probably the seminal works in investing. And, you know, you can see that's true back into the Dutch tulip craze. And we reach now a time and place where, value investing or substantive investing based on, you know, differentiated understanding of information and people and opportunity can sort of reap greater rewards. So, you know, what I think has always been true is from Benjamin Graham through Warren Buffett, you could be a value investor, there was a contrarian opportunity and it uh, you know, sort of landed. But I think we're going to see over the next 10 years some of the air come out of uh, some of the fluffier balloons, and that's going to have the benefit of reallocating value. You know, I think we're going to see a world where you will see, for a bunch of macro reasons, continued low interest rates, therefore a premium on yield. I think you will see multiples go up, but I think you'll see those multiples accrue more to people creating real value than before.
0: We've touched on Carlota Perez in prior conversations privately. Perhaps you could share a bit of uh, who Carlota
1: Perez is
0: and why she might be relevant to the conversation.
1: Well, if I want to connect it to a, a couple of these pieces, I, I feel like I have to take a, a fairly hard left turn and then bring it back. What I will say is when you look at the intersection between the internet and real value being created for people, you'll see very often situations that are leveraging a commons or leveraging public good and sort of creating value on top of it. You know, if there's one thing that I would call out, and I don't want to go into more than one, Coletta Perez has a a great appreciation of and description of why win-win is so important. So I think uh, probably doing more than that at this point will go way off on a tangent shy.
0: I have a quote that you shared at NamesCon 2017. We live in a time where the Internet is clearly the biggest agent for change the world has ever seen. That's a profound statement. What are you suggesting?
1: I talked before about all the change that the Internet has brought. I think we see it over and over. Then I'll always talk about the stuff that's still to come because, you know, I do think there's more, I have a, a you know, a clear view, I, you know, I like to be provocative and use a phrase post-democracy, you know, I think that that there are uh, really, there's very little in the way of effectively functioning democracy in the world today. And I think we'll start to see new and more evolved forms of governance, I think they will be facilitated Uh, distinctly by the internet. And I'm talking now in, you know, 20, 30, 40 year time horizon, Uh, uh, not something that's going to happen in a single cycle. When you see sort of change on that scale, you know, I think that we've seen already in the last 10 to 20 years, uh, by far the largest increases at a macro level you know, people entering the middle class in reduction in poverty, etc. All of the sort of key, hence Rostling-type indicators have really had a great run, and I think you will start to see a lot of those things now in the political sphere really start to accelerate, and it'll be the internet that will facilitate it. The ability for aggregation of supply, of demand, of interest, of any sort of critical mass just has, you know, impacts that we can't imagine yet. And so when we see things like AR and VR, when we see the changes that machine learning is going to bring, changes in material science, in the intersection uh, between uh, people and robots and artificial intelligence, and those are three separate categories, You know, I think that that, uh, we ain't seen nothing yet. Can you begin to share with us the road to fiberization,
0: what you see on the horizon?
1: You have to start, shy with the fact that uh, fiber optics is the first purpose-built infrastructure for the Internet. We've taken uh, previously old, you know, copper for telephone and old coax cable for cable television and repurposed it to push data through it. But fiber is purpose-built for data. It can handle significantly higher volumes with significantly less latency and significantly more reliability. There is lots of fiber out in the networks today, but it's not in the last mile, and the the network is only as strong as its weakest link. There is all of the heavy lifting still to be done. And there's no question in my mind that that's going to happen over the next 15 to 20 years. Now, what's important in charting that process is to understand that because we are fighting the last battle, because we are treating this like cable television, and when I say we, I'm talking about in North America, where it is essentially being treated as a private good, not a public good. What you see is each city and town taking its own unique path to getting fibered up. There are nearly 20,000 cities and towns in the U.S. I think there will be uh, nearly 20,000 unique stories. Each has a combination of public involvement, you know, in an extreme uh, sort of one end of the spectrum. You see uh, cities often where they have a sort of a large, well-functioning city utility, to lay their own fiber, they do it in an efficient way, sort of in in conjunction with the public utility. And you see that in Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee. You see it in Lafayette, Louisiana. You see it in Sandy, Oregon, AIM in Idaho, and more. The other end of the spectrum, you see cities and towns where uh, Google Fiber or where Ting Internet, you know, our operation have gone in. We use our own private money and we simply lay fiber. We have no, typically no obligations around build-out. You see this, by the way, that uh, the large incumbents are doing it. So AT&T, I want to say, is going to do a million homes this year with fiber. What they'll be doing is they're laying it in new builds or new MDUs, new greenfield developments, uh, where they would have historically otherwise have laid copper, which would just be silly to do now. So it's just kind of their replacement of the housing stock. And when you think about that that sort of million out of 120 million homes in the U.S., you can see that it will take a long time uh, to get to the other side of end-to-end fiber. You know, I'll note that in China last year, they did fiber to the home to over 100 million residences. So close to the total number of residences in the U.S in China just last year. Cities realize more than states, more than the federal government, that if they want to be competitive, if they want to create the sort of the economic environment and the educational environment and the healthcare environment and the communications environment, their citizens will need, they'll want, demand and need then they need to start working uh, on a path to fiber. So you have all kinds of middle grounds, where there's public-private partnerships, where cities have their own fiber assets that they contribute to a larger build, where they do special things with permitting, etc. There will be a lot of different roads to get to this destination.
0: If we take the intelligent investing in a changing world framework and apply it at a municipal level, Could you talk through any particular economic data points or other
1: metrics to share? Well, you know, I think that there's, um, in the same way that every city has a different story, every city has a different economic outcome. There was recently a a study that was done by a professor at Wharton who was very opposed to public fiber builds. And in some of the responses to his study, you'll see uh, lots of detail around the positive economic benefits that fiber networks bring you know one of the challenges is that uh, so much of that benefit is in externality you can hear stories in the state of tennessee about companies with head offices in nashville now opening a branch plant in chattanooga because of the access to better internet so you'll have anecdotal stuff all over the place You can do some paired econometrics around different growth rates, around jobs, et cetera, but you're controlling for a lot of variables. So there are a lot of positive things there, but so much of it is and should be externality that I don't like trying to capture it down on the ground. You know, I like to use electricity as a framework here because. You know, how would you measure the benefit of being able to read at night with a light instead of a candle? You know, it's so subtle, but so clear. I think we can just look at these things and they're obvious on their face.
0: You've described yourself as a lover of the open Internet. Could you unpack what this phrase means, please?
1: On the Internet, open has always uh, beaten closed. That was true through the early ISP days where you had the AOL walled garden through the instant messaging days, email over X25 and, uh, you know, SMTP uh, sort of standards based email and on and on and on and on. You know, the internet is not a, an invention. It's not a machine. It's a series of protocols that people choose to torrent to or to use. And, when we try and create property in parts of the Internet or in those protocols, we will inevitably uh, run into problems. So you see this in the net neutrality debate right now. And, you know, there's two things about that that that, um, really go to, I think, understanding uh, the Internet as open. The first is that when you have a limited choice in how you can get internet access, that really is akin to a road or or electricity. And you know, imagine if your electrical company was giving priority to a certain refrigerator or a certain light bulb. And they didn't even frame it as we're not going to give you worse service unless you pay us. What we're going to do is we're just going to offer a better service. So our regular service, which you have no alternative to, you know, will will run your refrigerator at a certain temperature that is suboptimal, and we'll have your food spoil in a little bit of time and a faster time period. But if you pay us, we'll offer you this premium service, which will uh, let your refrigerator run at whatever temperature you like. What all of that misses is that every bit of infrastructure that's in place today, whether it is copper wire, whether it is coax cable, it should be with fiber and isn't, and whether it's spectrum for mobile phone service, all of that was at one point derivative of public good. Public good was then allocated. It may have been allocated with terms and conditions, but it was a public good that was allocated. And There will always be an underlying element of public interest in the operation of the asset. So to me, it's that internet being an open platform for innovation is what's allowed us to create so much value today. And you know, when you think about other entities with significant market power materially, companies like Google or Amazon mm-hmm. or Facebook, they are not the same thing as companies that have market power that has flowed from the allocation of a public good, and that would be the telecom incumbents often we see, you know, the argument, which is just specious in my view, made that says, you know, well, Verizon will make it or Comcast will make it. You know, what about Google? Well, they have so much market power. Why aren't they treated the same? Because they're not the same. And there's one other point I want to make here, Shy, that I think is probably very, very useful for your listeners. And that's that I think it's underreported that right now, while we are at an age in which the biggest companies we've ever had in the history of mankind, we also have more overlap in competition in key markets than we've ever had. You know, the key markets, everyone agrees, are things like AR, VR, AI, machine learning, autonomous vehicles, uh, payments, uh, identity in all of those spaces, drones, uh, on and on, in all of those spaces. All of the big players in each, in any one of those markets, some or sometimes all of the big players, Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and then a whole second tier of companies like Microsoft and Uber and Netflix and a bunch of others are just competing. Nobody has nearly the clear view to market that a Microsoft or Intel had through the glory days of the Wintel franchise. You know, I think that's very important to think about. We have scale, which has been facilitated by the internet for all the reasons I've talked about. We also have more natural competition in the key markets than we've ever seen.
0: Elliot, again, we cherish the time you've carved out for us. It's a real privilege to learn from you. We look forward to seeing you again in September at the Yale Club of New York. Thank
2: you. Hello, this is Shy speaking. With a blank sheet of paper, we set out to design a platform that truly has a reason to exist. We began with five building blocks one, great people, two, purposeful interactivity, three, first hand perspective, four, intellectual honesty, and five, shared learning. We have laid the foundation for something beautiful. Latticework 2017 brings together individuals from around the globe to unpack the many angles of intelligent investing in a changing world. We are learning more about challenger brands, about China, and about disruptive innovation. We are case-studying the past in an effort to better navigate the future. We are exploring what is changing and also what is not. Explore the LatticeWork podcast series via the link at latticework.com. And also, let's meet one another, not just you and I, the collective one another, 100 of us handpicked. Apply to participate in LatticeWork 2017 at LatticeWork.com, taking place on September 7th in New York City for a full day of fresh insights and new friendships. I hope to see you there.